From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Dogs, just like people, experience chronic pain, pain like arthritis. So it may stand to reason that a gene therapy to help dogs feel better could have implications on humans too. We were so in the mindset of, yeah, anything, just do it. And honestly, I I could not believe the results of these injections. I was like, he's back. We continue our special series on pain. Then, two years after the first cases of COVID in Colorado, restrictions are easing, rules are largely going away. We'll talk with people about how they're feeling. You kind of feel like things are coming back to normal and that there's hope for the future. And later, the funky thistle gets its due in the Rocky Mountain tundra. I realized the thing that I was calling one species actually was two distinct evolutionary lineages. Plus, the draw of Colorado's ski hills. I'm Mark Flynn, and I donated my car to CPR. It wouldn't go into first gear anymore, but it was running. The process was just as described, seamless, easy, and allowed me to make my first significant gift to Colorado Public Radio. Selling a car requires posting information, responding, haggling with would-be buyers. That sounded like a hassle to me. It was more important to me to make an investment in Colorado Public Radio. It's easy to donate your car. Just go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. President Biden just announced a ban on Russian oil imports into the United States this morning. The move comes as Russia continues its advance into Ukraine as a humanitarian crisis grows there. The United Nations says more than two million people have fled the country since the start of the Russian invasion. Here in Colorado, the announcement by the president comes as gas prices skyrocket here, with all this uncertainty being felt at the pump. Joining me now is Skylar McKinley. He's with AAA Colorado. Welcome, Skylar. Good morning, Nathan. How are you? I'm all right. So give us a quick update on where things stand this morning. AAA says Colorado's gas prices jumped last week to their highest levels since June of 2013, with prices rising an average of nearly 40 cents over the span of a week. That's quite an increase and pretty quickly, right? Yeah. And in fact, as of last night, they went up another 10 cents or so. So we're at 50 cents over the span of a week. The statewide average is at $3.83. For context, the highest we've ever seen in Colorado was $4.09. That was in 2008. I think it's a near certainty that we will be in those record numbers again. Now, they're not record if you adjust for inflation, but that also might be a possibility. So generally, Coloradans should be accustomed to gas price increases and very quick increases, even day to day, as the price that we pay at the pump catches up to what's going on with crude oil. Yeah, you're seeing those prices tick up and down on the signs at the gas station every day, right? Uh, Is there a price point where Coloradans begin to adjust their driving habits? So as it happens, we hit that price point yesterday from our survey data. At about 375, that's where 64% of Coloradans say, I'm going to drive less often, I'm going to drive shorter distances, I'm going to try to carpool, going to try to combine trips. We also know at $4, though, that that number jumps to the vast majority of Coloradans. At, at north of $4 per gallon, which again is a near certitude, uh, 87% of Coloradans say, I've got to adjust my behavior because I'm noticing the impact on my family's bottom line, on our pocketbook, by filling up as often as I was at these much higher prices. Now, we know the U.S. doesn't import a lot of oil from Russia in the first place, but generally, where does Colorado get the fuel we see at the pump? 
Yeah, so uh, Colorado is it tracks pretty closely with what we get nationally. In Colorado, the most of uh, of our oil comes from Canada, comes from Mexico. We have some imports from South America, some from Saudi Arabia. But generally, uh, in Colorado, we're already using North American oil. You still see these giant price increases, though, because there's no such thing as a national crude oil market. There is a global marketplace. So even though we have historically not gotten a lot of fuel from Russia, other countries have, and now they're buying crude oil from elsewhere, which of course increases what we're paying as we're competing uh, for a smaller supply. It's kind of like a giant game of Jenga. Pieces move here, then that disrupts things over here. So it's all interconnected, it sounds like. Um, What are some of the gas prices we're seeing at the pump across Colorado? Let's say the lowest and the highest across the state right now. So the lowest right now is in Greeley at around $3.76. Denver, for context, is around $3.80. I know that Vail, which is historically almost always the highest prices in the state, is around $4.10. Near you, Glenwood Springs, is at about $4. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of these variations. But what I can tell you is thematically, uh, always your mountain towns are going to be north of even uh, Vail sometimes. So Steamboat will probably have higher prices than Vail, but that Vail corridor always has the highest prices in the state. Now, we don't. do we know why the prices are higher in some areas than others? Is it just the location and ease of reaching them, like Vail or Durango, for example? Both of those places are averaging $4 or more a gallon, right? Yeah, so Durango is interesting because there's just not a ton of service stations, and one service station right now is selling at a very high price, dragging Durango up. I think Durango will fall below Vail. Vail has high prices because there's very intense motorist demand driving up and down the I-70 corridor and not a lot of competition. You then will also see cheaper prices, usually in your major metros. Denver tends to usually have some of the cheapest, if not the cheapest, just because there's a lot of competition. There is a lot of demand, of course, but there's a lot of fuel moving into the Denver area because so many folks live there and drive to and through there. So expect more remote areas to have higher gas prices. And then because we are such a robust tourist state, major tourist corridors always have a bit of an upcharge because there's a lot of uh, demand and not a ton of supply. Now, will this ban by the president alone send gas prices higher here in Colorado? So this is the good news. Uh, This is a historic announcement from the president, and I don't want to minimize that. But we've already seen the market adjust to not buying Russian oil. We only import in this country around three to four percent of our entire crude oil from Russia. So it's not going to move the needle there. And over these past couple days, this past week, uh, many energy traders have just stopped buying Russian oil as a market choice because they did not want to support uh, the Putin regime's invasion of Ukraine. So there might be some ticks upward as a function of this, but they won't be dramatic because by and large, America has already stopped buying Russian oil. This just formalizes it. And in fact, it might lead to some more stability in prices now that we know that that oil is just not going to be available to come to the United States. During the president's speech this morning, he spoke of U.S. energy independence and oil production. And I want to note there are 14 active oil and gas rigs in Colorado. There were eight at this time last year. And by comparison, there were 21 in March of 2020. So the state's not back to the pre-pandemic normal when we're talking about oil and gas extraction here. But when it comes to the fuel for our cars... What can Coloradans expect with gas prices this coming week? Should they fill up right now? Should they say, I'm going to take a lunch early and go out and fill up my car? I would say fill up when convenient to you, but know that if you fill up today, it's going to save you cents, uh, to about 10 cents over filling up tomorrow. Here's what happened. We know that crude oil jumped uh, around $24 last week. That translates to a 60 cent increase based off changes from Friday. That's another 10 cents. So Colorado's already lagging behind around 70 cents. We've made up 50 cents of that delta from this time last week. Uh, with some other increases expected this week. So at minimum between now and 
Thursday, Friday, there's probably going to be another 15 to 30 cent increase. Fill up now if you'd like to save that money, but also know that your general behavior, you know, it, it, it's not logical to drive 20 extra miles to save 10 cents on gas. So fill up when convenient, uh, but fill up sooner in the week than later, knowing that prices are going to continue to rise probably for the foreseeable future. All right, Skylar, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks. Skylar McKinley is with AAA Colorado. When we come back, how helping dogs overcome chronic pain like arthritis could one day help people too. Our special series on pain is next. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A Catholic nun in Colorado Springs wanted to help victims of sex trafficking to recover from the trauma. Now she's opened a non-denominational home where survivors decide what resources they most need for their healing. Up to this point, they've been controlled by somebody else. So they'll need to learn what their needs are. No one's ever asked them before. Read about this place of rescue and recovery from sex trafficking at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Dogs, like humans, experience chronic pain. Now, a gene therapy being used to treat arthritic dogs could have implications for their human counterparts. It involves a substance naturally produced by cells. Bear, a black lab, was an early test subject. When he was two years old, his knee was injured and he had arthritic pain from a botched surgery. It's heartbreaking. Bear's owner, Thomas Story of Boulder, says up until the injury and surgery, Bear was eager to do just about anything. He was very, very active, loved playing, was not the lab that would just sit around all day in your living room and cuddle with you, wanted to be out and about. Story said that was the old bear. The new injured bear was a completely different dog. He'd be exhausted after a simple walk outside. He would just want to lay around and kind of, he would limp around a little bit for a day, not be his normal, lively social self. Story says he and his wife had Bear before they had kids and says Bear was everything to them. They tried just about everything, too. Opioids, CBD oil, braces for his legs, even water therapy. It may have helped, but not a lot. Then a veterinarian in Broomfield, Rob Landry, told them about a research study. It involved a therapy using injections of a natural protein produced by cells to reduce inflammation after an injury. And Story said they jumped at it. We were so in the mindset of, yeah, anything, just do it. And honestly, I I could not believe the results of these injections. I was like, he's back. For eight weeks, Bear was his old self, active, on the go, happy. But then he started to deteriorate again. So story went back to vet Rob Landry. And I was like, okay, when's the next injection? And he was like, there is none. And I like started crying. I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, it's a study. He was like, this isn't allowed right now. He's like, we're just trying to, you know, make it so this can be offered in the future. And I was like, but it changed my dog. Like it, it fixed him. It was beyond helpful. Bear died a few years later when he was 10, probably of old age. But Story thinks it was also a result of the pain he was experiencing. Now, more research is underway using the protein both on dogs and on humans. And Stories says, in retrospect, he's glad his dog was able to contribute to science. 
We're looking at this treatment for arthritis and its implications for people as part of our series on pain, in which we explore pain management. And veterinarian Rob Landry joins us right now. Rob, welcome. Good morning. So tell us a bit more about the dogs you are treating for this study. They all have a form of arthritis, right? Correct. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Um, Yes, we have been doing this. I've been doing this with Dr. Linda Watkins at CU Neuroscience. This is her clinical research. And it is and has been shown to be very, very effective for dogs with degenerative joint disease and arthritis in elbows and hips. And it's making a big, big difference. Well, and how bad is this kind of pain? Well, they've been living with it. Uh, A lot of the inclusion criteria is they've had to be chronically painful. And obviously in in pets, sometimes it's hard to kind of assess their pain. Um, But a lot of these dogs are noticeably limping and, and, and having quality of life issues because they just can't physically function. So without the shot, how do you normally treat dogs with this condition? Depending on the multitude of joints or the severity of disease, it's it's a combination of pharmaceutical medications, nutraceuticals, and physical therapy and rehabilitation. Uh, we do have some advances in stem cell therapies and PRP injections, but uh, it's a multitude or integrative approach to pain management based on the severity of the disease. Yeah, and do you see an improvement with with the the animals when you treat it that way? You know, most of the time we do, and and this study is also intended for dogs who are starting to fail kind of more Western integrative medicine their options. Uh, dogs who may potentially have toxicities to some anti-inflammatories that we use on a regular basis. Um, you know, and, and part of the inclusion criteria for the study is again that these patients need to be at least on and have tried therapeutics for a known diagnosis of arthritis. And so, you know, most of the time they do manage and they do well if you use an integrative approach to treating pain. Um, but a lot of the, there are a lot of patients that are starting to lose their efficacy from therapies. And uh, the progression of the disease is getting to a point where they have to be on more and more medications and it's just it's shortening their lifespan. So they've tried everything, it sounds like, and yes. things are starting yeah, to fail. Yeah, that's one of the things yeah. that, that was one yeah. of my um, kind of goals when I met Dr. Watkins several years ago was I have a lot of patients that are mentally and, and happy, and but physically they're just, they're struggling and they're not responding as well anymore to normal therapeutics that we use to help treat and manage pain. So is that what prompted this research by uh, uh, the researcher at Sear Boulder, Linda Watkins? Yes. So I met her at a pain conference years ago and, you know, on a, on a kind of a keynote speech on this IL-10 and their, your immune system's response to pain. And I, I noted at the end of her lecture that I, she was in Boulder. And so I came back and met her and I said, you know, we could really see a difference in this and we should utilize this therapeutic, therapeutic in canines um, to help hopefully preemptively go to, to humans. And I want to say IL-10 is the substance that you use, right? Yes, interleukin-10. IL-10 is the got it, got is it. a natural protein, yes. So, so how exactly do the treatments work? So it's a single injection. So we take actually that, that IL-10 and we inject it into the affected joint. Um, and the science behind it, it helps regulate or downregulate the severity of pain coming from that joint. Uh, it's not remodeling or changing the joint architecture it is really a, a really natural, potent anti-inflammatory that we inject into this joint that then kind of downregulates the the pain response coming from there. So they don't 
perceive it or have as much pain coming from that location. And it is just a local therapy. It is not systemically absorb, and it's it's pretty fascinating that the duration of it it's, tends to be a little bit longer term um, in terms of uh, efficacy and how long it lasts. I had yeah. a patient I did a and shoulder, I and he was I did a shoulder injection three years later. He was down off of his medications to once a week, and he wasn't as dependent on pharmaceuticals after three years after one injection. Wow! So that is that is definitely an improvement. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and it really is a case by case basis, depending on the level of remodeling of the joint, the level of instability in joints. I mean, the the dog we did the shoulder was hit by a car and had severe scar tissue and arthritis in the shoulder. One injection, and she no longer had to do acupuncture, laser medications as often. So it's really encouraging to see. I've read arthritis, specifically osteoarthritis, is the most common disease dogs face. At least 20%, maybe more, suffer from it. So this could be definitely an improvement for them. But let's bring this back to humans. What could this treatment look like for people? Is it similar? Would you see similar results? Yeah, so based on the research we've done in the last 11, 10, 10, 10, 11 years, I know that they've they've gone and I've started several human clinical studies, starting with knee arthritis, um, where they're injecting this into um, human patients with degenerative joint disease of the knee. I am not aware of the results of those. It's not something that they disclose uh, to me, but I know that we're moving towards phase three and FDA, and it, that's that's pretty substantial that we can find that it is going to be translational uh, research where we can see this clinical benefit, start applying it to human degenerative joint disease, um, and and has have as a therapeutic to help. But I've heard the the researcher Linda Watkins says this this really does show promise in humans. Absolutely, and we're yeah. actually the second phase of our study is is utilizing um, you know we're we're, gonna, we're we're putting in the IL ten and and its receptor to help kind of. Um, shorten the time frame on which it starts to help and lengthen the time frame on which it can help. And that's part of our second phase of our study here is we want to modify this so that we can get it to work quicker and last longer. So with this study, it's ongoing. Um, when someone with chronic pain is hearing this, saying this could be for me, um, sure. Do we treat this this type of treatment as kind of a cautionary tale really, or a cautionary note being like, the research is ongoing, you know, don't run out and talk to your doctor yet. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, right now, as it stands, uh, right now, I'm the only person kind of doing this in the United States, and it's a Colorado patients. It is a research clinical study. So it, our goal, obviously, is to get this as a therapeutic on the market for general practitioners to have as a tool in the toolbox to help significantly reduce the pain in pets. Um and that's part of the process of collecting data and getting data in a clinical study to show that it's um, safe and effective and no minimal, no no side effects. Um, it's just a matter of patient selection and getting this on the market so we can have this, so we don't have to run to, to drugs all the time. And when might the treatment be available for pets and for humans in a couple of years, a couple of months? Oh, you know, that's hard to determine, and it's hard because it, it's the FDA kind of thing. So it's one of those things yeah. where this has been going on for me about, uh, again, 10, 11 years, and um, I'm still in the clinical research phase. And I think they just want more data, and they want more patients to see um, the results in. We've done a lot of patients, and they just they need more. 
Yeah, well, of course, so you have to my hope sure is any time. <laughs> I mean, next year, a couple years would be wonderful. And if they're going as far as they are in the human side of things, I think we're closer than we are further away. Got it. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the time and, and thank you so much. Veterinarian Rob Landry owns CEAPM Veterinary Clinic Center in Broomfield. He's doing research on arthritic dogs using a substance naturally made in the cells. The research is a collaborative effort with CU Boulder and could have implications for people with chronic pain due to arthritis. It's part of our series on pain, about pain management. We're exploring all kinds of therapies as well as research involving chronic pain. It's officially been two years since the first COVID-19 cases were confirmed here in Colorado. This moment in the pandemic comes with lower risks of infection and broader immunity for now. In response, officials are easing some rules and restrictions or outright dropping them. Now, many Coloradans are wondering what's ahead. CPR health reporter John Daly spoke with some of them. It's a bright spring-like day, a Colorado bluebird day. On a downtown street, a group of young folks is feeling it. Teens and early 20-somethings are lined up around the block of the Fillmore. It's a Denver concert venue. Um, we're waiting in line for the Louis Tomlinson concert. He used to be in the band One Direction, but now he's got a flourishing solo career. Christina Kirvasa is sitting on the sidewalk in a mess of blankets and a pillow. She's got the first spot in line. She's starting to hit shows again after a long two years. For this show, masks and vaccinations are required, but that could change soon, too. Uh, it's nice to kind of be back in a more normal environment, you know, like when you're at a concert, you kind of feel like things are coming back to normal and that there's hope for the future. In a pink box, a dozen melting chocolate-glazed voodoo donuts await. Fiona O'Brien is up at the front of the line as well. How are you feeling about the pandemic and going to see shows in person? Um, I'm triple vaccinated because that's just, you know, the smart thing to do. It makes me a little bit nervous, but I'm double masking for the show. For O'Brien, it does feel like a bit of a new dawn. And a lot of Coloradans would probably agree. Transmission, cases, hospitalizations have all been dropping in Colorado. And so, too, are many restrictions and recommendations on things like masks. But O'Brien says the last two years have instilled some caution. I don't think it's over at all. Like, it's nice that we're able to do things like this, but it's also incredibly important to stay really safe. A few miles away in Wash Park, the sands are shifting in the playground at the hands of a youngster named Nova. Hi, what are you doing? Um, I'm making this huge, big mountain. She's literally making a mountain out of a molehill as Grandpa Van Williams looks on. He's a retired geologist and expresses a weary but pragmatic optimism. Do you feel it ready to turn the page on the whole pandemic or not yet? Well, I think, yeah, we're in a different stage. That doesn't mean it's all gone. It could come back at any time. But we're having a little break. Williams says his daughter is a virologist. I take my clues from her, I guess you could say. She and Dr. Fauci and I, we're all on the same page here. <laughs> he says he and his family have been careful wearing masks, getting vaccinated and boosted. Eventually, Omicron still found them, getting quite a few family members mildly sick. With that behind them, William says he's now ready to get out a bit more. We're doing more traveling now, but not uh, too much by air, although we're going to 
ease into that. Over at the hoops court, Dosh Sims is listening to tunes, shooting baskets, and then pops a handstand, first on two, then one arm. Whoa. That was good. <laughs> I cannot do that. Sims tells me he and his wife and daughter caught COVID last year. He's unvaccinated, just wasn't ready for the shots, and says no one got too sick. Mild symptoms, you know, I think the worst was the loss of taste. <laughs> Couldn't eat good foods. Sims is a fitness instructor and says his workplace has closely followed the rules, masking when required. He says he's ready to roll with whatever comes next. You know, I don't know, man. It kind of feels like we, I guess you just got to figure it out as you go. I feel like nobody really knows and everybody has an agenda, so um, <laughs> I don't know. Across the state in Grand Junction, it's also a nice day. Mom Alicia Baker walks her one-and-a-half-year-old Baylor on Main Street. She says the virus is real, but never trusted the response or even the latest official data. I think the reporting is not correct. I think that the testing is not correct. Baker works in a hospital registering patients. The virus scared her early on, but over time she started questioning the effectiveness of masks and vaccines. She applied and got a religious exemption to avoid a vaccine requirement at work. I don't think that it's something that we should stop living our lives for because it's here and it's going to stay. And I think that people should build up an immunity to it more than being scared and locked away in their house because that's no way to live. In Colorado Springs, parents Benjamin Brunson and Medisol Whale Swan are going to pick up their four-month-old son from grandma. Brunson isn't vaccinated and is worried about his child. Um, I'm kind of scared about the new variants and stuff going on. Brunson says he worries vaccines got developed too quickly. He could change his mind, but in the meantime, will keep wearing a mask in crowded settings. The mask mandate at certain places is definitely needed as far as like traveling or really like tight enclosed sit-in restaurants, you know, where it's kind of like those are like the hot spots, you know what I mean? Whale Swan finds the current state of the pandemic a bit unsettling. Things are better, but some are still getting sick. Um, I feel like some things have kind of cleared, but at the same time, it still like feels like bumpy, you know? Like, it feels like very confusing. Back at the Fillmore, you can still see signs of the in-between time. Outside the concert venue, a few are wearing masks. Everyone in line has a yellow wristband. They got them when they showed their vaccine card. It's no big deal, unlike Louis Tomlinson. His tour bus gets mobbed. The cell phones are out to capture the moment, and soon he's being serenaded. I'm John Daly, CPR News. When we come back, a new plant species in Colorado's alpine tundra. Its discovery was a complicated bit of detective work. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. We're all broken in our own ways, and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And I remember them like whispering behind my back of being like, oh, don't say that to Lynn. You're going to give her an eating disorder. 
We're coming back on March 4th with some of the most powerful stories we've ever told. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You'd think in this era of modern science, there'd be nothing new under the sun. Well, get ready for a newly discovered species of plant, and it's called the funky thistle. It lives in some of the alpine meadows here in Colorado. I'm joined by botanist Jennifer Ackerfield of the Denver Botanic Gardens. Jen, welcome to the program. Hello, it's great to be here. So before we get to how this plant was discovered, what does the funky thistle actually look like? Oh, gosh. Um, one of my favorite favorite questions to ask about the funky thistle is uh, alien or plant, because mm. it looks so funky, <laughs> uh, almost like an alien. You're up in the alpine tundra where most of the plants are these tiny little things. And then here's this giant thistle coming out of nowhere. It's like, I don't care. I don't care that it, uh, we're in the alpine and it's super cold. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be giant. And so they have these yellow flowers that are densely packed into this giant um, nodding inflorescence and uh, surrounded by these woolly hairs. And of course, it's a thistle. So the leaves are, are spiny. It's a prickly endeavor to uh, collect any of these for scientific research. But definitely, it, it is a very funky looking plant. So it, it's bigger than most things in the Alpine area. It's It has a yellow top. You say flowers. I, I think of thistles having these, these tops that almost, you know, kind of billow out there. And it's yellow. That seems key. I think of thistles yes. as being purple at the top. And a quick Google image search for thistle brings up a screen full of purple. But this is different, right? Uh, correct. In fact, uh, this is actually one of two species in the world of thistles that exhibit yellow flowers. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So so it's it's 2022 and, and we're still finding new plants. How is that even possible? That's actually a really good question. I would like to take a little step back and, and just say that I didn't really discover this plant. I mean, people have walked by it up in the Alpine for, for over 100 years. I was the first to really put a name to it. So it had just been called the wrong thing. Uh, the discovery here was that this thing that we've been calling this mountain thistle actually isn't mountain thistle at all. So that that's really the discovery. Uh, so it was a distinct species accidentally lumped together with a more common variety of thistle, right? Correct. Correct. And uh, so, so how did that happen? Oh, that's actually a really good story. It's story time with Jen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think really in order to understand, you know, kind of where the confusion came from, you really have to understand that every name, right? Every species name is really just a hypothesis set forth by whoever, um, some author that said, oh, this is different and, and this is why, and I'm going to call it this name. But, you know, it's just a hypothesis waiting to be tested. And in this instance, the hypothesis set forth um, was by Asa Gray. So Asa Gray was the father of North American botany, uh, just a preeminent botanist in the 1800s. 
right? He was very influential. Um, well, am, am I correct in, in, in that Ace of Grey is Grey's Peak? It's a 14er, right? Is that the connection there? Yes. Yes. So Grey's and Grey's Peaks were actually named for Ace of Grey and John Torrey, who was another botanist, by Charles Perry, who lived in a little cabin at the base of, of Grey's Peaks. And it was actually Charles Perry who collected specimens and sent them back to Asa Gray to describe. So Asa Gray actually didn't really come to Colorado to see these thistles for himself until much later in his life and really relied entirely upon the specimens collected by Charles Perry. So the specimens get sent back to Asa Gray. Asa Gray is like, oh, this is totally a new species. But on one of the specimens that got sent back to Asa Gray, there was a tiny little note that said, this is the dense nodding flowered alpine thistle with yellow flowers. So the whole specimen was actually too immature to actually see the flowers. And so Gray actually re reading this one little note decided this species, this mountain thistle, will have yellow flowers in the description. And so when a botanist names a new species, there are two things that they have to have. They have to have an original description, you know, describing the plant and all of its morphological features. And then they also have to have this thing called a type specimen or a reference specimen for that species. So the reference specimen said the flowers were yellow. Gray puts that yellow into the description and thus chaos ensues because he was actually not describing the flowers of the actual plant that he was looking at. So it was just a massive mistaken identity, it seems. Huge, huge mistaken identity. Because he couldn't tell that it wasn't yellow. The species was immature, right? Exactly. Uh, and the other thing about thistles is that they often really dry brown on a herbarium specimen. And these thistles are huge. They're really hard to encompass on like a, an 11 by 18 sheet of paper. So you miss a lot of the morphology when it's brown and kind of chopped up into these little bits. And so Asa Gray, you know, he, he had his lines of evidence, but they were they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to your exploration of this this species, funky yes. thistle. Uh, why name it funky thistle? Well, that actually has a, a dual dual meaning, dual purpose there. Uh, really, the name Circeum uh, Funky is to honor uh, my mentor as a PhD, the just amazing uh, worldwide expert in compositing, which is the family that the thistles are in, the amazing Dr. Vicki Funk. She was a curator at the Smithsonian Institution, and unfortunately, she passed away. But I wanted to honor her memory and, and just her amazing contributions to botany with Circeum Funky. So getting back to the thistle, uh, can you remind me again, the species Gray actually identified the, the, the purple one? 
yes, the specimens that Gray was, was looking at were actually the purple high alpine mountain thistle called Circeum scopulorum or, or mountain thistle. He, he, didn't, he didn't realize um, that right. the flowers were purple at all. And you mentioned that the detective work that goes into figuring all of this out. Can you take us briefly through how that all works? Right. I mean, you really want to make sure that you have your lines of evidence clearly defined. Um, it, it actually all started with uh, the genetics. So I, you know, had this phylogeny, which is just a tree showing the evolutionary relationships among all of these different species. And what I realized was that the thing that I was calling one species actually was two distinct evolutionary lineages, meaning that they couldn't be the same species. This is what started the whole thing. And then, of course, I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, I reanalyzed the data over and over again, but every time they came out as two distinct evolutionary lineages. So I go, okay, well, let's take a step back. And let's look at the original description. Let's look at these uh, reference specimens for this species. And let's really try to figure this out. Um, and that's when I saw the little note and I went, huh. Now, this is probably where Gray got the idea for, for the flower color is yellow. I mean, I even went back all the way to uh, Perry and Gray's correspondences. I read through all of their letters back and forth in hopes of finding some small little tidbit of evidence in there. Finally, I found uh, Perry talking about the thistle and I was so excited and I thought, oh, this is it. I'm gonna finally have the answer. And Perry called the flowers white. <laughs> oh. So, so, so I was like, oh, well, that's not, that's not great. Thanks, Perry. So to me, that said, well, the specimens that he was looking at were probably not mature either. They probably didn't have the flowers out. So then I went back to Perry's detailed location. So reading through his journal, I was able to retrace his steps through the Rocky Mountains and determine that where he uh, collected this specimen was within the range of the purple uh, Circeum scopulorum and not in the range of the yellow uh, species. So now we've got, you know, multiple lines of evidence, right? We've got distinct morphologies. We've got yellow flowers versus purple flowers. Uh, we have distinct geographic ranges and we have distinct, you know, unique evolutionary lineages. So we've got, we've got some good lines of evidence pointing to the fact that there was an undescribed species just just hiding in plain sight. Yeah. I mentioned this is an alpine plant, but but more specifically, where can you actually find it? It's actually really easy to find. You know, if you just go into the alpine, especially in the Sangre de Cristos, it is pretty common. Um, where we collected the type specimens for Circeum fungae is on Mount Sherman. Um, it's all over Mount Sherman, loves those scree slopes there. And you just have to know how to look at it. You know, I, I think one has to have a real love-hate relationship with thistles. From afar, they're really beautiful, but <laughs> get too close on a hike, as my dog and my daughter have in the past, and it's going to ruin your day. But you have a passion. I can just hear that you have a real affection for the thistle. 
I actually think that everyone should. You know, really, unfortunately, a lot of people think that the only good thistle is a dead thistle. And a lot of that comes from these uh, misconceptions that are driven by, you know, these invasive weedy plants like Canada thistle and bull thistle or musk thistle. Those aren't native to North America and, and they can really do a lot of ecological damage. But our native thistles aren't like these weedy thistles at all, you know, and they're actually important components of the landscape. And so one of the things that really breaks my heart sometimes when I go up to the Alpine is I see people, well, I, I, I don't actually see the people doing it. I see the after effects of uh, people thinking that they're doing good and they have actually ripped these Alpine thistles out of the ground thinking that they're ridding the alpine of these awful weeds. And that's actually, uh, you know, not not the truth at all. So is that, you know, beyond the scientific finding, you know, is that kind of the reason it matters that you've identified this as a, as a new species? I think there are several reasons that this matters. You know, of course, it's, it's good to promote the fact that thistles are important plants. And then you know, anytime that we have these new species that come along, it really just helps us redefine, you know, what is biodiversity? What is out there? Because we can't protect what we don't know is present. So by designating the species, are you hoping it can be formally protected, kind of like a threatened animal species? Now, this one is really not in any danger of going extinct anytime soon. <laughs> Uh, it has a wide distribution. You know, a lot of its its range is pretty inaccessible. This particular species, no, I don't think needs to, you know, have any kind of formal uh, rare status, uh, protection status, um, anything like that. How does this plant fit into possible discussions about climate change? And, and how does this plant maybe uh, show us what's happening with the Earth's climate? For the funky thistle, these are questions that we really don't know the answer to. This would take setting up kind of long-term monitoring stations to see, are they, you know, moving up the mountain per se? As they live in the Alpine, you know, that's, that's their habitat with climate change. How are they adapting to that? Moving up the mountain because, you know, as, as things get warmer, right? Because tree line, I always hear tree line is where trees can't grow anymore. And that continually raises exactly. that. Was that what you're saying? Got it. Yes. So is tree line shrinking, basically, right? Mm. Is, is the alpine shrinking? And if so, how is this impacting not only the funky thistle, but all species in the alpine? Jen, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Jennifer Ackerfield is head curator of natural history collections and associate director of biodiversity research at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Colorado is well known for its many sprawling, world-famous ski areas, but it's also home to some so tiny you probably haven't heard of them. They aren't run by giant corporations, but instead by their own communities. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg hits the slopes. There's a handful of these municipal ski hills in Colorado. And when I say most are small, I mean small. Like you're on Main Street in the little town of Uray, and you just head up 3rd Avenue for two blocks, and here you are. 
Lee's Ski Hill, where dozens of people have brought their lawn chairs, babies, and dogs for Cabin Fever Day, an annual late winter celebration. Camped out at the base of the hill, they watch local kids compete in a ski jump contest. Yep, one performs the 90s dance, the Macarena, while airborne. The mountains that surround Uray are astonishingly tall and majestic. But Lee Hill is just 75 vertical feet. Still, it's no bunny hill. Just ask the seven-year-old. Vera. Vera Heinlein, who recently moved here from Nebraska, and says learning to ski here is not easy. I know when I kept falling down. But she's smiling and still keeps getting back up and trying again. Learning the way Rick Trujillo remembers doing himself as a kid back in the 50s. But back then... There was no supervision, nothing whatsoever. Talk about a different time. After school, we come and turn on the... Uh, Tow and Skeetle Dart. A seasonal city employee is now on site, and the rope tow ski lift has been upgraded. But one thing that has not changed is the price. Trujillo, the oldest of 11 kids, was able to spend so much of his childhood here because it was free. And it's still free of charge, which I think is unique in Colorado or anywhere. Sitting on what's now become prime real estate. Trujillo says in 1946, a local woman named Dima Mary Lee donated much of this land to the city. To be used, quote, as a recreation area for the young people of Uray. Trujillo found that paperwork in the late 80s, when the city was contemplating selling off the land, a plan that was quickly abandoned after he intervened. This desire to keep something special for children has kept small, city-owned ski hills going in Durango and Silverton. Howelson Hill and Steamboat is actually a city park now. And Tiny Lake City still has its one-lift ski hill, even though the local government did float the idea of closing it three times. Each failed. Because <laughs> of me. That's longtime resident Henry Woods who also had the support of local moms. That's one of the biggest powers in the world is angry mothers. Woods, who coaches the kids' ski team, says the ski hill used to charge a small fee for school children. But he found that even five bucks was a barrier. So he worked at a deal with the school where every student gets in for free. So there's no haves and have-nots of the ski hill. And on Monday mornings, a crowd of kids descends on it for ski team practice. They joke and roughhouse in line as they wait for the lift, a historic hand-me-down from Arapaho Basin. It's from the 40s and is actually the oldest lift of its kind in the state, a pama lift, where you put a disc between your legs and let it pull you up the hill. It requires concentration and strong hands to keep you from tumbling down, but the kids are absolute pros including 11-year-old LeBron Wampler. He's only been skiing a year, but can feel himself getting better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, every day. So it doesn't matter that there are so few ski runs that one is actually the summertime driveway for a fancy house, or that typically there aren't many people here. Well, I'm really shy, so I, I like it. And for local mom to three, Sarah Tubbs, it's been a really supportive place to relearn how to ski. You can fall on your butt and laugh at yourself. But maybe more than anything, it's close by. Going to another ski resort would take two hours or more. 
But to get to this hill, her hill, it's five minutes. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but for all those bonuses, Don Unock knows that ultra-small ski areas can still be a tough sell in Colorado. There's dozens of ski hills that I used to ski at when I was young that are not there anymore. Just go by the wayside because the big resorts took over. And as he sees it, who wants to go to one of those? You have to have a $5,000 pair of pants and a $10,000 pair of skis, etc. <laughs> as opposed to Lake City, where equipment is provided with your lift ticket, which is only $25 for adults. Unock feels so strongly about keeping this place going that for the first 12 years he worked here, he did it for free. He says he's just glad the Lake City ski hills survived. You never know what's going to happen, though, with global warming. You never know, because this year we're really dry on snow. And this is one of several municipal ski hills that cannot make its own. In Gunnison, city-owned Craner Hill has gotten so little snow it couldn't even open this winter. And it was looking pretty bad for Uray, too, until a recent storm brought feet of much-needed powder to Lee Ski Hill, just in time for Cabin Fever Day. Kiddos in brightly colored ski helmets and bibs zoom up to a line for something called a rope tow, basically a rope suspended in air that they cling to as it spirits them up the hill. Carrie Hickman, who grew up here, says she first took part in this event when she was three, 40 years ago. And so to be back here with my kids, participating as five and seven-year-olds, it's so cool. And kind of bittersweet, she says. I'm glad it's still a, still a loving place here in Uray. A window into old Colorado, tucked right off of Main Street. At Leeski Hill, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us and to the team that keeps our tow ropes moving up the hill. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters or send us an email, coloradomatters at CPR.org. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.